Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Anybody else have that situation that you feel like you're talking two different languages with the people that you know best? Yeah, it's hard work. And uh, we all, I think, my theory is that we all speak a slightly different language because we all have different ideas of what words mean. And so uh, that makes it a little bit hard. And so it's fascinating to me that we use the space between us um, to communicate complex ideas in a world of light and sound. And, and even with the, the most nuances language, we often misunderstand each other. I'm reading this uh, interesting book right now called um, Message and Mission, and it's by a guy named Eugene Nida, and uh, you probably never heard of him, but I know that he's affected your life in one way or another because uh, he's one of the, he was on the mission field, and he came back from the mission field with a theory of Bible translation because there are some languages that it's really hard to do word-for-word translations, and so uh, he came back with the concept you may have heard of of dynamic equivalence, that you need to translate not just words but also ideas because sometimes there's not a word-for-word equivalent. And so if you've ever read from like the NIV, which we're going to do this morning, or the the New Living Translation or the Good News Bible from 1976, uh, those Bibles are all all the result of this guy's work. Anyway, all that to say, he wrote this uh, interesting book called Message and Mission, uh, the Communication of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was reading this week about translating scriptures and how uh, a message has to be encoded into a language and then decode it at the other end. Does this relate to how you communicate with your spouse? That you encode what you mean and they have to decode it on their end. Okay, are, are you with me? Okay, this is how language works. We use these words. We use the material space between us. There's the vibration of our vocal cords and the air passing over them and it moves sound waves and it carries across space. Or you can send a text. So we use light sometimes to uh, communicate. But uh, it has to be decoded on the other side. I'm, I'm really making a, a show of this, aren't I? So uh, in Bible translation, it's important that the original meaning be conveyed in order that others understand it. And so he uses some examples of potential misunderstandings. And I thought these were fascinating. He said, uh, do you remember the story of the tax collector and the sinner, how they're standing on the corner praying? And one um, prays out loud, thank God that you didn't make me like that guy, Right? Do you remember that story? And it says the tax collector uh, beat his breast. And Nida, who spent many years on the mission field, said that there are some places in Central Africa where beating on the chest actually is an expression of pride. And so you have to understand that. So if they read that particular translation, they would think he's being boastful or proud or self-congratulatory, when in actuality he's being humble. And so we have to communicate ideas. And he talked about some other things. Uh, he, he talked about um, how in Hebrew, one of the ways that you would say that you're 50 years old is you would say, I'm a son of 50. A son of 50. Isn't that interesting? A son of 50. And uh, Jesus' words in Mark 6.34, prepare yourself for this. It's going to be a little shocking. In Greek, is Jesus was intestining on the multitudes. Intestining. 
Okay, that's strange, isn't it? And that's the, the language that uh, Mark is writing in. He's writing in Greek, and he's using the proper idiom to communicate to, this, uh, to the effect of that Jesus had compassion upon the multitudes. And the way we might say it is he had a heart for them or whatever, but they saw in Greek uh, in that time, they saw the intestines as the seat of the emotions. We see it as the heart. You love with all of your heart. Uh, <laughs> It's hard to imagine somebody saying, I love you with all of my intestines. Uh, That's a little bizarre, isn't it? But that was the way that it was communicated. And so if these things are not communicated in the right way or the wrong kinds of words are said, misunderstandings happen, and they happen happen all the time. Um, And so I'm not an expert in communication, and still I hear sometimes when I get done preaching, uh, people have said to me... um, I really enjoyed that message, and then they told me what they thought it was about, and it had no connection <laughs> whatsoever with what I intended, and so I don't know where the problem was, whether it was in the encoding or the decoding or somewhere in between, uh, but sometimes we get misunderstood, and we have to ask clarifying questions, and what really, really helps, although it's not a cure in terms of our human understanding, is getting to know the person who's, who's speaking, Okay. And also, if you know the person who's hearing, you know that there are certain trigger words or whatever that might set them off. Uh, if you're married, you know the you know the buttons to push to get, get to get them mad. Okay, that never happens at our house, but we've seen it on TV that those things happen. Um, but you also know a little bit better how how to communicate because you know the individual. And so we have to take time in our communication with God. We have to take time to listen to him and to get to know him so we understand what it is he's trying to say. We don't want to listen because, uh, we often don't want to listen because we don't know uh, what God might say, and uh, we're a little bit afraid of that. But here's the really neat thing about uh, God speaking to us is he knows how to speak our language. He knows how to communicate to us in ways that we'll understand. Okay? He can speak to us with clarity. Now, that doesn't mean we won't take it and expand on it. A lot of times I've seen where people have received maybe a prophetic word or something, and uh, they they feel that they've heard from God, but then you hear them <laughs> expanding on it. And uh, <laughs> I remember Tim Enlow, one of our friends who, who ministered here, he said that they were in a church service, and somebody stood up and they gave a, a prophetic word. And then you could tell where the Spirit left off, and the rest of it was them. Because then they said something like this. Oh, yeah, and if you thought last summer was bad as far as heat, next summer is going to be worse. <laughs> and he said everybody kind of knew in their heart that, that that's where it had dropped off. But my whole point in saying that is that sometimes we can add to what God has said to us and thereby create misunderstanding. But if we'll listen, God can speak to us and we can hear him in ways that we'll understand. We often don't want to listen because God might say something um, that we don't like. And what I think most people do in prayer, if they pray, is they quickly tell the Lord what they would like for him to do for them, and then tag it with the magic formula, in Jesus' name, amen, and then they're out the door. And they take no time to listen to what God has to say. I want to encourage you today with a thought that prayer is not just speaking, it's also listening. Come on, we need to take time to listen to God. Now, that can be frustrating because God doesn't always speak on our schedule, I'm amazed at how many times in Scripture people are doing other things and the Word of the Lord comes to them 
in that particular moment, and they've got to stop what they're doing or continue what they're doing, but hear from God and begin to process what he's saying to them. But there's many other times where God, in the moment of prayer, opens up revelation to people and shows them what it is that he's about. You know, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And to me, that suggests that he was in a moment of prayer when God came down and opened up to him our final book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. And I I think it's important that we take time in our prayer, not just to say, but also to listen. Jesus spent entire nights in prayer, right? Anybody read that in your Gospels, that he spent the whole night praying? Well, uh, do you think that he had a list long enough to talk to the Father that long? Or do you think that there was some kind of exchange of, of talking and listening between him and the Father? I think that was probably the case, is that there were times that he spent in listening. You can go through a really long prayer list in about an hour. But if you really want to commune with God, that takes time. And so he must have spent time listening. You might, in your prayer time, fall asleep. Don't worry about that. You can wake right back up and start where you were. Sometimes people fall asleep when I'm preaching. And they wake right back up, and they're at a different... That's, I'm starting to understand why there's a misunderstanding at the end of the message. Okay. Um, we really made the knowing the will of God more complicated than it needs to be. We're going to come to our scriptures. I think we, we need to study. We need to read God's Word. We need, to, we need to understand it in context. One of the great things about this study that the um, young adult group is doing is uh, one of the themes of that book is never read a verse of the Bible. Do you understand what I mean by that? Never read a verse of the Bible. Always read it in context is what they're going to say. There's no shortcut for that, and that's God's primary way of revealing himself is through the Scriptures, which we're going to look at in uh, just a second. And But I can't find anywhere in Scripture where it says that God no longer speaks personally to people. Okay, and if you found that, please let me know because I haven't seen it there. I think what we understand of God is that he can speak to anybody anytime he wants to. Uh, but please hear what I mean. God is not revealing to you that you need to write a new book of the Bible. If he speaks to you, you're not writing a new book to add to Scripture. Like, oh, there's one after Revelation now because somebody got a word from the Lord. Uh, no, uh, when God speaks to us, he's doing something else. Uh, the writing of those books are reserved for the people who are close to Jesus and during the time of his earthly ministry and those prophets whom God chose long ago. The kind of speaking that God does to us now or, or towards us now uh, is applying the word of God to our lives in the particulars. Okay, So let me give you an example of that. Uh, we know from Scripture that idolatry is wrong. Where would you find that, that idolatry is wrong? The Ten Ten Commandments, right? They tell us that you shall have no other God before me and not to make graven images and bow down and worship them. So we know that from Scripture, but the Spirit of God may say to us, you're making an idol out of your job. Okay. So what the Spirit of God comes and does is he speaks to us personally and he applies the Word of God to our lives. So he's already spoken. He's shown us the, the general revelation or the specific revelation, if you want to be exact about it, of his revealed word in the Bible, but the Spirit of God applies it to situations, and he speaks personally to us still. And so if you've ever felt under the conviction of the Holy Spirit when 
you've read your Bible or somebody's speaking to you, it's, it's a good possibility that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Right? Okay? So that's one example. And you may know from Scripture that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and God may show you a specific way that you could apply that, maybe being, for their, being there for them in a time of need. Um, even the Old Testament prophets, they many times were spending their time applying Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's what they were doing. So, like, what's Isaiah doing? Is he out there trying to create brand new laws? No, he's applying the law that had already been given. And so the prophets were applying the, the law, and uh, we understand that the Spirit of God applies those things to our lives as well. We need to hear from God. Psalm 16, verse 7, we, we talked about last week. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at, my, even at night, my heart instructs me. And then we read this morning from Psalm 40, ears, my ears, you have opened. And I think this is really important to understand that God not only wants us to talk to him, but he wants us to listen to him. Okay, And that listening is to his word as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. But he also wants to speak to our heart through his Holy Spirit. And so we have to have listening and ready hearts to be willing to receive what he has to say. I'd like to take us to a story that's well known in 1 Kings 19. And if you know the previous part of this, uh, Elijah was a man called to apply the law to Israel. And so he's serving as a prophet to the northern kingdom. If, if that doesn't register with you, just understand he's a prophet to God's people who have fallen away from him and are worshiping another God. And so Elijah is praying, and he prays a prayer like this. It sounds strange, but God, withhold the rain. Why? I wish somebody would pray for that these days, right? I remember on a Wednesday night, we prayed. It had been dry all summer, and we prayed, God, send rain. And I think we forgot to stop to pray for the rain to stop. But Elijah prayed that it stopped raining because people were putting their confidence in the wrong thing. And so um, it didn't rain. And he met up with the king um, by arrangement. And there he challenged the king to uh, a duel, uh, like the old Western duels. But they're going to go up on Mount Carmel and they're going to call upon their different gods. Uh, Elijah is going to call upon Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the prophets of Baal are going to call on Baal, who is supposed to specialize in sending rain and lightning. And uh, whichever God answers by fire, they're going to, they're going to serve. Okay? So they go up on Mount Carmel, and you know the story probably uh, well enough. We, know, we don't need to describe it in detail. The prophets of Baal go first. They pray nothing. Okay? They do all the extravagant stuff like dance around and cut themselves and and try to plead with Baal to answer, and he does nothing. And Elijah steps up and prays a 66-word prayer, and God sends a thunderbolt from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And everybody gets saved, right? No. That's what's discouraging about this, is that visible evidence will not convince everybody. Some people will not believe, and the problem is not evidence. The problem is moral. They don't want to submit and surrender to a God that will require them to live a certain way. And so Elijah prays, and you know that prayer we talked about a few weeks ago where he prays again and again, and finally the rain comes, and he tells Ahab, you better get your chariots going because the deluge is coming. So uh, he outruns the chariot, and he goes down to Beersheba, and then he goes into the Negev, 
and he finds himself, which we're going to read this morning in verse 9 and following of chapter 19. Okay, he says uh, in verse 9, the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. By the way, this is Mount Horeb. I didn't mention that portion. He went all the way down to Horeb, which we we know is Sinai. We'll talk about that in a moment. He said, I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me too. Uh, And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altar, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Same answer, same question. The Lord said to him, go back the way that you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you. As prophet, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. I, I, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all who have not, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So here we, we have the story of uh, God talking back to his prophet Elijah. This is an excellent passage full of practical wisdom, and I hope to unpack it for us today in the time that we have here, and we've got to go fast but I think we can find some we can find some principles in the story in the story of the Bible. Elijah has gone from Carmel to Horeb, the mountain of God, and Horeb is the same as Sinai. You find that if you look at Deuteronomy, all of the references to Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy, except one, use the word Horeb. Okay, and also you may not you may not know this, but you may. It's also the place where Moses experienced the burning bush. Did you know that? This very same place where he receives the law later on is the place where he received his initial call to ministry. And so he uh, describes it as Horeb. And uh, here's why that's important. It's the place Moses received his calling. It's the place where Israel received the law. And maybe Elijah thought, I'm going to go back to where it all started. I'm going to get back to where it all started. I went through this prophetic thing. Israel has abandoned you. But maybe I can go back to where all of it started and something new can take place. Maybe I need to hear a word from the Lord again. Maybe God will give me a word there. He called Moses there. He gave Moses the the Decalogue there. Maybe he'll do something for me. So God asks Elijah when he gets there, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you know God asks really important questions? And he never asks questions for information. If he asks you a question, it's because you need to know something, not because he needs to know something. He always asks us questions that get right to the point of things. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, did the very same thing. So he asks him the question, what are you doing here? 
And Elijah tells God something he already knows. Uh, the nation is apostate. I'm serving you. They've killed all the other prophets. They're trying to kill me. Uh, and it's bleak. That's the gist of it. And God didn't need to know that. He's not informing God. He's really lamenting the situation and feeling a little sorry for himself. Come on, I'm speaking of the human condition, aren't I? Anybody here ever not felt sorry for themselves? Everybody, right? We've had moments. Maybe today is one of those. We've heard a lot of encouragement today. We've had an exciting service up to this point. (laughs) Up to this point. Where if we felt sorry for ourselves, God's got our number. Because I felt like there's a theme running right through this. Why is Elijah there? Well, verse 3 tells us of chapter 19 that he was afraid, that he's there. He's, he's at Horeb because he's scared. He's poured out his life in prophetic ministry. He's taking great chances. Jezebel wants to kill him. She really wants to take his head off. And so he's scared. I've tried to serve you faithfully. and It seems like all of my investment is for nothing. I would ask you today, are, are you there? 14b shows us that he was weary. He rested a few times, and an angel came and ministered to him, brought him food, and he fell asleep. And the angel wakes him up, gives him some more food, and says, hey, uh, you're going to need to eat because the journey is long. He's tired. Are you tired? You've been fighting the good fight. You've heard the scripture, be not weary and well-doing, but you're weary and well-doing. It means don't be, don't quit. You can be weary. You can be tired from it. It's good to ex- expend our energy for the things of God. But what it means is don't let your weariness stop you from doing good. He's weary. Elijah was there because he was discouraged. You remember he already prays, and if you read the first part of this chapter, you find out he prays uh, a prayer like this. In fact, it's, it's good just to read it. Verse 4. Uh, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left the servant there. And while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. God, I want to die. I've had enough, Lord. And, and let me pause here for a moment. If you're reading your Bible, would you put your finger on the enough? It's not for us to decide when we've had enough. We don't know our capacity. God knows. Come on, say amen. Preach it to your neighbor a little bit. We don't know when we've had enough. God knows when we've had enough. Because how many times have we said we've had enough and God expands our capacity to deal with it more? Come on, it's true. God knows when we've had enough. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. (laughs) It's funny now because I can see myself in it. How about you? I'm no better than my ancestors. What does he mean by that? None of the prophetic tradition have been able really to convince the people to turn around. So I maybe this is the end of a delusion for Elijah. Like, I'm the answer. I'm the guy that's coming on the scene that's really going to make a lasting change and make a difference. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make a difference, but when you think you're the answer and God's not the answer, there's a problem. Okay, I'm no better than any of those other guys. And the real answer to that is you're not. You're a vessel that God can use. And the sooner we come to terms with that, the sooner we can be uh, pliable in his hand to do what he wants us to do and to know where our limits are. Because nobody is going to save us all except Jesus. Come on, right? 
He was discouraged, though, and he prayed to die. But God, God spoke to him. And then, verse 8, I think Elijah was there because he needed, he needed to hear from God. He needed God. And so that's why I think he goes to Horeb. Let's go to the place where revelations happen. Not the book of Revelation, but where God reveals himself. In fact, uh, if you turn back to Exodus 34, I'm not going to um, go there and spend much time. But that's the place where um, Moses is when he asks to see God's glory. And God says, I can't let you see my face and you live. But if you'll hide in the cleft of the rock, cleft and cave are a lot alike. I'll hide you with my hand and I'll pass by and you'll, you'll see the afterglow. And Moses did. And his face shone as Paul describes it. He saw the glory of God, and he was transformed there. But it was a similar kind of thing. Like, I, I need to know you'll go with us, Lord. I think Moses was discouraged at this point. And he needs to know that God is with him, that God is there. And I think Elijah needs to know the same thing. And so if we come to moments in prayer. We don't just say all of our requests. We need to spend some time in his presence, listening to him, asking him to show us who he is. A significant thing in this moment of prayer was not what Elijah said to God because we see him just pouring out his complaint. But believe it or not, it doesn't sound like prayer. It doesn't sound like kneeling beside your bed at night kinds of prayers. But this is, this is Elijah praying. He says, he's saying in complaint, he's pouring out his complaint. I don't mean that in the way of complaining. I mean that it's like a lament. He's saying, look at the circumstances that are going on in Israel, Lord. And uh, that's, a, that's his prayer, and God answers back to him. And it's, it's not the thing that Elijah prayed that's so important. It's what God said to Elijah. I want to mention three things here. I think it's three things. Uh, God, helped me, God helped him, first of all, to hear his gentle voice. So if, uh, if Horeb is Sinai, and we, I think we all agree that it is, then there might be a contrast that's being made here. In Exodus 19, verse 16 and following, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled, and Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from, from it like a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And it's interesting because trumpets in the Bible are not there for their tone, but their volume. Okay? Trumpets are the public announcement kind of thing. Some of you remember the, the beep, 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 the emergency uh, signal that sometimes comes over the TV. This is what the trumpet is doing. It's saying everybody needs to listen up. The voice of God is going to speak. And God speaks throughout the Bible many times. In loud ways. Could I caution us against something? And that's creating in our spirituality false divisions between extremes. Because some people will say God never speaks in a loud way. That's not true. That's not true. He does speak in loud ways. And some people will say God never speaks in quiet ways. And that's not true either. He speaks in the way that's appropriate for the moment. Come on. Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's boisterous. Here in Exodus 19, it's loud. Here in 1 Kings 19, it's silent. It's quiet. 
So God knows how to speak to the appropriate situation. And so I would encourage us not to try to draw extremes in that regard, but to respond to God the way that he is speaking. God speaks in uh, many times in loud ways, but we can't expect that that's the only way that he speaks. And it seems to me the purpose of speaking loud was to let all of Israel know he's real and he's powerful and they better listen up and they better tremble because he's not to be trifled with. He's not a game. He's not to be taken lightly. But here in this moment, Elijah knows all of that. And this is a moment of intimacy. If you look at it, it says those other things pass by. Look at uh, verse, uh, verse uh, well, it's right in the middle of verse 11, it looks like. It says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence. I'm, I'm going to pass by. That reminds us of Exodus 34, 12, where God passed by Moses. He says, I'm going to pass by again. This time it's going to be a little bit different. It says, then a great and a powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shouted the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in that. Some people are only looking for the spectacular and the loud. They can't see God in the stillness and in the quiet. They have to have the cheerleaders. They have to have the emotional upheaval. It has to be always dancing and only dancing all the time. Okay? And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's appropriate place for that. There's sometimes that God needs to slow us down and quiet our hearts and speak to us quietly in a whisper. He wasn't in that. goes on to say, after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. These are similar to what happens in Exodus. But the Lord was not in the fire, not this time. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. It's interesting because different translations have uh, different ways that they communicate this. Um, for example, the uh, NRSV says the sound of sheer silence. It was the sound of sheer silence. All of that phenomena, that loudness passed by. Then there was the sound of sheer silence. Can God speak in that silent way? I don't know if that completely captures it. So others uh, have the sound of stillness, uh, a gentle blowing. The, the New American Standard has a gentle blowing, a low whisper. I think is the ESV here, a low whisper. God is speaking in a low whisper. Sometimes we have to get rid of the noise in order to hear that. Come on, true? We have to push the noise to a side so we can listen for the voice of God. There's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of white noise out there. More and more, it seems, all the time. God speaks to him. He challenges him. Through this gentle voice. And I think the gentle voice suggests intimacy, don't you? Up close, personal, quiet, intimate. And the lesson in it may be that God is still active. He's still speaking. He's still working apart from the spectacle. If you remember, Elijah has just come from Mount Carmel. It was a spectacular moment. I don't know what that sounded like. But if it was lightning, as some suggest, that lightning came out of the sky and that's how God struck that uh, altar, there was probably a sound with it, a sound of a peal of thunder that came down in that moment. And that would have been not been seen as just a natural phenomenon. Everybody, everybody would have known 
this is God responding to that. So it might just come from that, but maybe he's come to expect that God is the God who answers by fire. You know that, that uh, many people call Elijah the prophet of fire. But it's interesting here that God's not in the fire. Something different. There's something quiet and still about this moment. God answers by fire. I don't know what that sounded like, but I suspect a great noise. The forces usually associated with God need to be remembered with this important word that he can speak in the quiet too. So you're in your prayer time. I don't know if you have a place for that, but maybe you're kneeling beside your bed or you've got a prayer closet. For a long time when we were here, I took that quite literal that you get into your closet. And I know it doesn't mean it that way, but I had a closet in my office that I cleared out and put beanbags in and sat in there and I would pray. And I can't get my body in those positions anymore. So (laughs) I have to abandon that location. The principle remains the same, that you need to pray and spend some time listening for what God might say. You're probably not going to hear an audible voice. You might. But that's really not the point because God doesn't need to speak to us through the material world. He doesn't need to speak to our ears. He can bypass all that and speak right to our heart. If you've ever felt the prompting, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you a methodology of determining 100% this is God's will, but I've found many times that when I feel the prompting that I need to do something, it's the right thing to do, but I don't want to do it, I feel like God's probably speaking to me in that moment. You know? So... He's, he, he can bypass all of that. He knows our number. He knows how to speak our language. He knows how to get to the heart of what he means. And we can know what he means. And that's why I think we will all be responsible for what God's spoken to us. Because you can't say, well, I didn't understand. He knows how to speak in a way that you understand. And I understand. Okay? So God uh, met him and spoke to him, showed him his voice could be quiet as well. Second thing that happened is God helped him to see that what he was believing was wrong. Folks, I hope you'll hear this today. This is really important to our maturity as Christians. Not everything we think and everything we feel is right. And we need to hear God come and challenge it. And he does that. He does that in a couple places. Um, one place is, uh, is with Cain. Remember Cain, he's mad because his brother brought the better sacrifice. And God's like, do you have any right to be angry about this? Okay, He challenges how he feels about it. And then we find Jonah's mad because God spared Nineveh. And God says to Jonah, why are you angry? Do you have any right to feel this way? I mean, 120,000 people plus the cattle, they've repented. They're going to see their lives spared. And he challenges other people, and here's, here's one of those. He challenges Elijah's wrong thinking, his wrong assumptions. And I think Elijah expected some kind of commiseration, like, God, I'm fighting your battle. Can you come feel bad with me? You relate to that? Well, just I want somebody to relate to how I feel at this particular moment. And God doesn't commiserate with him. Instead, God challenges his assumptions. And if we listen to him, He's going to correct wrong beliefs. He's going to rebuke wrong feelings. He's going to give us a better understanding of the way things really are. Maybe that's one reason, because we like to be self-indulgent with our pity. And God doesn't want to 
leave us there because that's not healthy. I, and, and so I wonder, does God ever endure self-pity? What do you think? Nobody wants to say it because, you know, <laughs> the next time that you feel sorry for yourself, this, uh, this word's going to come ringing back through. We never, we never hear God endorsing self-pity. Why would he? It's an insult to his sufficiency. He's not going to in- indulge that. Self-pity suggests God's not enough to satisfy us. And it also comes when things look hopeless, but God's a God of hope. Instead, what he does is he redirects him. He asks them a question, why are you here? And Elijah gives him the, uh, the litany of bad things that are going on in Israel, which God already knows about. That's why he called him in the first place. And, um, and then he redirects him a little bit later, which we find out in just a moment. He's going to give him a new assignment. But he challenges, I'm the only one. And let me, let me challenge that too, because one of the lies the enemy wants to put in our head, either for bad or good, and I'll explain that, is you're the only one. Self-righteous, stinking attitude. You're not the only one. Okay? It's the only one, I'm so good. It's the only one, I'm so bad. Nobody's ever had it as bad as me. Both of those will get you, keep you in a place where you don't have victory. So instead, why don't we recognize that no temptation has taken us except what's common to man. Everything that we face in life, there's, there's an equal out there somewhere. Somebody else has experienced it. And oftentimes worse. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes the things that I find uh, people being self-piteous of, I'm like, do you realize, and, and sometimes it's me, too. Do you realize how bad others have it? <laughs> it's not quite as bad as we often think. But God brings, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 others who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You're not the only one. I've preserved those. Yes, a lot of the prophets are gone. They've gone on to their reward. Uh, Elijah, I'm not going to let you go on to your reward, not just yet. I've noticed uh, in coaching, I like to watch sports, and I've noticed in coaching, whether you like sports or not, I think this is interesting, that uh, some of the best coaches do this. They redirect the loss to a positive for growth. Okay, guys, uh, you guys have let go of the fundamentals. We need to practice those a little more. But I think this loss is really going to help us. And some coaches will say a good loss or a bad loss serves to grow much better than many wins. It's true. And so here Elijah gets an opportunity to grow, and God comes along, and he's going to redirect him to a positive place. And so God helps us when we pray and we listen to clarify some of the things that we believe that are wrong, some of the things that we feel that are wrong. And nobody can speak it better than God, and nobody can change. And you can't argue with God. You can, but you never win, because when you fight with God, you never win. Even if you win, you lose. Everybody catch that? You can't win when you fight with God. He always wins. And if you fight with him and you win the, the argument, you lose because he's fighting for your best interest. The third thing is that God helped him to finish strong by giving him an assignment, a new assignment. Okay, so look at, uh, look at verse uh, 15 with me. The Lord said to him, go, go back the way that you came. Uh, and go to the desert of Damascus, okay? 
So if you know where Elijah was, he was in the northern kingdom. He passed all the way through the southern kingdom of Judah and went down into the uh, Sinai Peninsula and there was on the mountain of God. And now God's asking him to go back the way he came, a way that others might have seen him walking before, where people might have been looking for him, Jezebel's people. And not only to go there, but all the way up to the road of Damascus. That means all the way through the territory where there's a threat. He asks him to do that. And he says, when you get there, uh, I've got a responsibility for you. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. This is uh, uh, the nation of Syria or Aram. And this has been the northern kingdom's constant bully. And so what God is asking him to do is a very strange thing. Anoint a new king for the enemy of my people. Why? Because that king is going to come in and help Israel be purged of their idolatry. You find that fascinating? I do. So he says, anoint Haziel, uh, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Why? Because Ahab's house is about ready to be, lined, uh, be wiped out. Okay, Ahab's going to die in a battle, which we'll find out about another time. Um, Jezebel's going to meet a terrible end. And the house of Ahab is going to come to a collapse. And so what God is saying to Elijah here is, you need to anoint somebody in hope. In preparation for the future, it gives him a new hope that the, your arch enemy, Ahab and Jezebel, who brought Baal worship into Israel at, at this level, it was already there, but at this level, they're going to be gone. There's going to be a new king. But I need you to do it in faith. It's going to look like you're a traitor to them, but I need you to do it in faith. That He anoints uh, Jehu to be the next king. Jehu gets the job done, by the way. And then also anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat. Well, what's that for? That's your replacement. Okay? You're going to anoint your replacement. So he sent him on a task. And I don't know if you've uh, followed the rest of this story, but, but anytime Elijah goes to do something after he anoints Elisha, Elisha's always like, I'm coming too. And he's like, just stay here. And he's like, no, I will not stay here. I'm going with you. They go everywhere together. Okay? And so what's interesting about this is, Elijah has prayed, God, kill me, and God gives him 16 more years. I can't remember where I found that. I think it's Walter Kaiser, the Old Testament scholar. 16 more years of ministry. After he prayed, he had a death wish. God, I just want you to kill me. Jezebel couldn't touch him. She perished before he did, I believe. Um, Jezebel couldn't touch him. And uh, God saw him out on the uber of fire. Right, the chariot of fire. He was lifted up to heaven, so to speak. <laughs> think about that for a moment. All right, but uh, here I think it's interesting um, that Elijah, Elijah was such a, a monumental figure here in the challenge to Baal. But he's like, what now? And the nation hadn't turned back. It's uh, hard to estimate how important this word is that God gives to Elijah, set in motion a chain of events that would check Baal worship. And the job was not Elijah's alone. Elijah stuck in, was stuck in that moment of the story, but God, he sees the future. He still had important work to do. Um, we often put that weight, that unnecessary weight upon ourselves that it's entirely up to us. And we have our role, and our main responsibility is not doing it all. Our main responsibility is being obedient to the voice of God. Okay, so he goes after God, and 
This word which came to Elijah shows that he's not alone in the struggle. There's others who God would help see this through after he was gone. You see, one of the causes of Elijah's discouragement was um, a move from God-centered living to himself-centered living in a weird way. If Elijah is not the hero of this story, and he started to think of himself as that, I think. God's the hero. Elijah is just his messenger. Uh, and this passage talks about listening to God when when uh, things in a situation, a particular situation, need God to speak. But you know that we don't just listen for God when it's problem time. We listen to him even when uh, it's good. Okay, We need to listen to him all the time because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What would have happened if different people... Um, had not taken time to listen in the Bible. I think it's interesting that when Jesus uh, started down that final road to the cross, it would be Moses and Elijah that would meet him on the mountain. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Who was it that met him there to encourage him? Moses and Elijah, two men who'd faced difficulties. They faced their low points on mountaintops both of them on the same mountain, Horeb. And now they've come to minister to Jesus and help him to see his way through all of this. Let me give some practical wisdom because when you listen to God, I think God's going to speak to you. Let me suggest some practical things here. Before listening, a decision needs to be made about whether you want to hear from God or not. Okay, Before you get into the fray or get into the ring, you need to answer the question, do you really want to hear from God? Because if you don't, you can go on and play religious games. But if you do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rock you and it's going to revolutionize you. Okay, So a decision has to be made. And that's a personal choice hidden from everybody else, hidden deep inside of you. So most of the time, people can't, they're not going to know. If you're really like in your prayer life going, God, answer my prayers, but I don't really want to hear from you because I'm afraid you, what you want to say. You can come and sing and worship and still have an arm's length between you and God. And that's real sad. We have to decide whether we want to listen to him or not. God, of course, knows. So you have to decide whether you'd like to live with convenient lies, like I'm the only one, or an inconvenient truth. If you'd rather live with comfort or purpose. If you'd rather change or stay the same if you'd rather live with joy or have regret those things are all part of that decision practically what this looks like is a decision is being made in your life whether your life is your life or god's life okay so if you're not liking the decision you're making presently you can change that today and say lord i don't i really do want to hear from you i've been putting you off for a while now, but I really do want to hear from you. Uh, It won't be easy. It may not be easy, but you won't regret it. Then we should repent of not listening to him, of course. We put him on the margins, and then you want to tell the Lord you'd like to hear from him no matter what he has to say. Okay, I challenge you to do that. Say all that you need to say to him in your prayer time. And then after that, your time's not over with God. You need to uh, ask him what he would like to say. And if you need to, um, set your phone aside. 
Okay, set your phone aside. Or you could automate a message that says Nehemiah 6.3 and then let them look it up. But I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come. Remember the, the unholy trinity tried to entice Nehemiah to come when he's building the wall and he sent them a message back. He sent them a message, not by text, but by messenger. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come. And when you're pray- in prayer, you're doing a great work. And you cannot come. And so it's a great time to put that out. Some practical guidance from observation. First of all, don't be discouraged by silence. God doesn't often speak in audible voices. And even if you don't hear anything, what you're doing is making a space for God to speak. And that opens up room for dialogue. God speaks in his time and in his way. He's not like a fool who just likes to talk. He speaks with purpose. Because when he speaks, things are created. Come on, right? When he speaks, things happen. His, his word doesn't return void, so he doesn't just speak purposelessly. Uh, it's, it's not about volume either. It's about truth. It's not about how much he says. It's about him saying what needs to be said. Uh, and the second thing relates to what I said a moment ago. Leave your phone out of reach. The world survived for millennia without our cell phones. Uh, the problems will be waiting for you when you get back to it. Isn't that good to know? Um, remember the transfiguration. Jesus was up on the mountaintop being transfigured, and then they come down, and he finds his disciples in a dispute with the religious leaders. And so you find this every time somebody goes up on a mountain to spend time with God, they always come down to problems. So the problem will be waiting for you with your cell phone, wherever it is. Put it in a Faraday box or something like that and keep it keep it quiet, but uh, spend time with the Lord down the mountain, stuff is waiting. Linger on the mountaintop. You'll have to discipline yourself not to get up. Stay in your Bible. God is not speaking contrary to his revealed word. God is not confused. He's not a God of confusion or contradiction. We're not mystics who disregard the Bible in place of a more direct word. This is every bit as if God spoke to you audibly. Come on, anybody going to give a witness to that? This is as good as if God spoke to you uh, personally. Uh, We'd like that a lot more, but this is just as good. If we don't, that puts us in dangerous to spiritual manipulation. So let me warn you from a pastor's heart to guard against anything that changes revealed truth about God. I've heard some preachers get up and say uh, they've told something that God told them that was contrary to the Bible. And I don't believe in that. Don't believe it either. God God has given us wisdom. He gave us a book to measure our experience against. Fourth, be careful about rushing and telling everybody about what God said. Okay? Not everything God says to you is for everybody else. I think you need to spend time weighing through that. There's been a lot of damage done by people who've said, God said when he's not said. Church kids have grown up. I know some kids like this. They've grown up in church watching adults say, God told them to go down this new course in life, and as soon as the excitement wore off, they're back to the old thing. And these kids start to wonder if the whole institution of God speaking is even real because they've seen flaky adults. So I would caution us, be careful about saying God said when he hasn't said. You better know that he said something. Okay, so we need to make sure we've heard from God. We need to make sure, uh, we, need to make sure we have time to understand what he is saying and why he's saying it. And we need to make sure of whom it was said for. Okay, We can get excited when we hear God speak to us, but maybe it's not for everybody. 
every time may not be an experience where you feel awe. You may not be moved to tears when you spend time listening for God. You may not feel peace at that particular moment or whatever your personal mark is of experiencing God's presence. But you will have cultivated a life of listening to God. And you'll have cleared out an area. You'll have made room for him. And I expect God will come marvelously and fill those places that we leave open for him. Quickly, benefits, number one, to hearing God's voice. He will guide you to purposeful living. Okay, We don't have to live purposelessly. I would ask uh, you today if your life is aimless, if it feels aimless, if you've been listening to God. Okay. Second, you will become more like him in your character if you listen to him. If you spend time waiting on God and listening to him, he will transform you to be like him. Okay. Three, you will come to know him better and you'll know his heart. And then miscommunication is not going to happen like it did before because you'll have understood who he is. And then fourth, you'll hear him speak to you more frequently when you've made time for him. God can interrupt you and say stuff. And oftentimes he gives us... uh, He speaks to us on the move. But I think if you'll spend time listening for God and you have that heart that's already said, speak whatever you want, Lord, I'm listening, you're going to hear him speak more and more. All right? That's uh, the word for today. Elijah gets up. He goes on with his calling. He raises up some leaders that are going to help tromp out Baal worship. So his life was not the be-all and end-all, but it was part of what God was trying to do in that particular day. And uh, I want to just encourage you, if you want to live purposefully for God, we need to be listeners and not just speakers. Amen. You ever got into a car with somebody and they talked the whole time? Zach and I went hunting recently. He got in the car with me and I talked the whole time. Sometimes, and that's unusual, but sometimes uh, people fill up the space like that because they don't want to hear what others have to say. That wasn't the case in our situation. But sometimes that's the case. And if we're doing that in our prayer lives, maybe we don't want to hear what God has to say. Would you stand with me? We're going to take a few moments to respond here. I preached a long one here, and I'm sorry about that, but I think there's good practical wisdom that we need. I would ask today, have you been listening for the Lord to speak? If that's the case, if you haven't, if you say, I haven't, I want to challenge a change today. I could start right now. We could take a few moments. We're we're going to open up the altars in just a few moments. I know that we're right at the end of our usual time. If you um, have heard this message and uh, you're not going to respond or you don't intend to respond or you have to go or you feel like you've got business taken care of within this area, um, these altars are going to be open. And when you need to leave, you can leave. And uh, our worship team is just going to continue playing. Okay? So this is our formal dismissal right here. Maybe this is a time of discouragement for you. You've been, you're like Elijah. You're discouraged in some area. You've been praying for your kids. You're not seeing a change right away. Maybe um, you've been doing a ministry or you don't feel like where you should be. You're where you should be in life, and you're discouraged. It's a great time to begin to listen to God. Okay, It's not only in those times, but that's a great time to start.
And then I would ask you this question. If you've been really listening, but you're not heard anything, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Because if there is, it may be that God's waiting on you to, to deal with something before he can say the next thing. Okay? So I would encourage you to think through that and ask the Lord. He loves you. He wants to speak to you. He's not going to say unnecessary things, but I think he's a God who still speaks, and we need to be listening. And prayer is a great time to do that. So I want to invite us not to be mystics, but to be those who hear from God in both his word and through his spirit communicating to our spirit. Okay, so that can happen. That's Hearing from God is just not for super saints. It's for everybody who has the spirit of God. All right, I'm going to open up these altars. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never prayed and asked Christ to come into your life, Jesus died for your sins. He died for mine too. And uh, he just asked that we would repent of our sins and turn to him in faith and trust that his sacrifice is enough to cover that. God will forgive you. The Spirit of God will come and live in your heart, and you'll be changed. And you'll have this opportunity to communicate with the Lord of the universe in prayer because you have a personal relationship with him. But that can't really happen the way that it should apart from Christ. We need Jesus. Trust in Jesus today. Say, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. Come into my life and forgive me, and he will. All right, these altars are open. I'd like to invite you to come and spend a few moments in prayer before we go. This is our formal dismissal, so if you feel to leave, uh, we are dismissed. today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.